So the plan several weeks ago is that we would walk through this series that we have called A New Way. That it would be our series in Lent and it would include Easter Sunday and it would build us up to that point. So we were going to walk through it through Lent and we had a Lenten guide and some of you read along in that Lenten guide and that Lenten guide finished on Holy Week, on Easter Week and, and again, that was the plan. That was the plan the, the entire way along. Lent, this season, MJ alluded to it. I mentioned it. He did more than allude to it, didn't he? He mentioned it. Uh, but this season of Lent builds towards Easter. It's the idea of laying something down and building towards the celebration of Easter. And it culminates on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday. So that was the plan with the series. We would walk through a series. We would talk about a new way of living, a way in which Jesus had come to earth to teach us about, to model for us, to call us to. And that we would build up and we would finish on Easter because Easter was the great time to finish this. And then this week, or maybe last week, as I began to think about what came next, I looked at the book of John and I remembered the gospel writers didn't actually end the story of Jesus at the resurrection. They had more to tell. They had more to say. There was more to the story that they needed to get out. In fact, Jesus didn't end yet. Jesus wasn't finished with what he was doing. Jesus had more to do and he had more to say. And in this life that he was living here among his disciples, he wasn't yet finished. So, we're going to spend one more week in this series. Today, we're going to continue in this series that we've called A New Way. And we're going to look at these last couple interactions that Jesus has in the end of John 20. These interactions that are um, really quite incredible. Miraculous as we watch them take place. But if you pay attention, if you try and think about what it might have been like to be there and now to read the story. For me in reading them, they're they're even a little bit comical to read and imagine and think about the things that Jesus was saying. But I do believe that these last two interactions are vital for us to understand the ongoing call of Jesus for his disciples. It's here that we see some of the answer to that question that surfaces for many on Easter, that surfaces for many at the resurrection. Now what? Now what? What do, we, what do we do now? What happens now? What's next? What's coming up? So the story tells us that, that Peter and a disciple who we assume to be John, verse 2 only says this, says the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And most commentators assume, not that one yet, go back, thanks. Um, most commentators will assume that that was probably John. He makes this mention a few times throughout this writing. John is the only one that uses this, so they assume he's probably talking about himself. Maybe there are some questions, there are some that wonder, there are some that guess at other things. Things, um, but there are these two disciples, Peter and the one we're not certain who he is, who go to the tomb to check out the tomb because they had been told by Mary that the tomb was empty. So they went to check it out. They went to confirm that what she had told them was true. And what they found out is, yes, the tomb was empty. 
All that story is kind of funny, too, as we watch and they run and one waits and Peter bursts in like Peter always does. And But that's not where we are today. Um, but we see this interesting thing take place. And then they leave. And when they leave, a very fascinating inter- interaction takes place because Mary is still there. And we're told that there are people that are there that Mary notices, not while the men are there with her, but after the men leave, she recognizes that there are other people at the grave. Two angels and someone she assumes to be a gardener. And Mary confronts the gardener. What has happened to Jesus' body, she asked him. She believes that that maybe the gardener has some understanding. Where's Jesus gone? What have they done with him? Who took him? Where did they put him? I want to go get him. So she has this whole interaction with the gardener talking about the body that she'd come to see. And the body's not there and Jesus is gone. And I can just imagine how excited she is trying to explain all of this because it doesn't make any sense. And then the man that she believes to be a gardener speaks her name, and there's such power in that piece right there as the gardener looks at her and says, Mary. And it's as if Mary's eyes are opened all of a sudden, and Mary recognizes that this is no gardener. This is Jesus. Jesus stood before her. And then Jesus gave her a challenge, a task, a responsibility. Go tell the others. Now we all run into scriptures where we want to ask questions, where we want to know more, where we want to understand more. And I have more questions I need to know here that the passage just doesn't give us. Why did the angels and Jesus appear, but not until after the men had left? Why is it that Mary is the only one that saw them? Why Mary and not the others? We don't know why. We're not told why. We don't have that indication there as to what was going on or why it only appeared to her. But I believe this wholeheartedly. This was not by accident. Jesus chose to meet with Mary at the grave and not the others. This was not by accident. Jesus chose to speak to Mary and not to Peter and the other disciple. Jesus chose her to be the first to carry the message of the risen Savior. And the truth is, this makes zero cultural sense. Which is part of the reason I would love to ask more questions. Culturally, this made no sense. There is absolutely no way the gospel writers, when they were writing this down, would have made up this story this way. This is not the way to make up the story. The story was much more powerful if if Jesus had appeared when all three of them were there. Or even if it had just been the men present, the story would have carried much more weight, much more significance. If there was more than one person, they would have had witnesses to what was taking place. It would have been a lot harder for anybody else to look at them and go... She's just crazy. She's imagining this. She's dreaming. She's making all of this up because she wants us to believe something that can't possibly be true. Not to mention that if Jesus had done this and it had been men who had gone back and shared this story, it would have carried far more weight than it did coming from Mary's lips. Culturally, Mary's voice did not carry the weight or the influence or the significance that Peter's or the other disciples or, for that matter, 
any male voice would have carried. And although we can't be certain why Jesus chose to act in this way at this moment, it does seem to me incredibly consistent with the ways in which Jesus worked throughout his time on earth. Over and over again, Jesus gave power to the powerless. Over and over again, Jesus gave voice to the voiceless. Over and over again, we watch as Jesus welcomes to the kingdom people that wouldn't be welcomed anywhere else. And not only does Jesus welcome them, that alone would have been amazing, would have been baffling. Not only does Jesus welcome them, then Jesus has this tendency to empower those people who would have never been welcomed anywhere else. Mary had been given a powerful message. Jesus was alive once again. The tomb was empty, the Savior had risen, and then she was given the task of going and carrying that to the others. This is over and over again the way of Jesus. This is the way in which Jesus works time and time again. Jesus chose a woman to be the first to tell of the resurrection. And there's something powerful in that reality. And the story of John transitions quickly. It goes from the interaction with Mary and Jesus at the tomb to this situation where we're told the disciples are gathered together behind locked door. They're hiding in a room, making a plan. Jesus had been killed. The grave was empty. Now Mary comes and tells them that Jesus is risen from the grave. And I can imagine the confusion in the room as they're all trying to figure out, what does this mean? What's going on? What are we supposed to do? How much danger... Are we in? The story tells us that they were afraid. They were locked in this room. They were gathered together because they were afraid. They were trying to figure out what were they supposed to do next. I imagine that some were afraid because they weren't yet convinced that Jesus had risen. We see that that's true of Thomas, who apparently wasn't in this room but was in a later room. There's, there's no way Thomas was the only one who had these doubts, who had these questions, who was wondering. Thomas played the, the picture of one, I assume, among several, who wondered what had happened, who wondered if Jesus had actually risen and if maybe the Jews were coming for them next. They'd kill Jesus, would they kill his followers? Some were afraid and they were gathered together because they wondered if the Jews had actually stolen the body. There were those that believed that maybe said the Jewish leaders had stolen the body in order to make sure that nobody could make any preposterous, preposterous claims that a resurrection had happened. So some wondered, had, had the Jewish leaders stolen the body? There were also some who wondered if the exact opposite was true. Apparently there were some Jewish leaders who believed and who said the disciples have surely stolen the body so that they can say Jesus had risen from the grave. So there's all this confusion, there's all these questions going on, and then I wonder if there were also some who were afraid of what it might mean to face Jesus face to face after the last few days that they'd walked through. I wonder about Peter, the disciple who had been told that he would turn his back on Jesus and said, no way, not me, and yet had, not once but three times. Was he afraid Stand before Jesus once again. 
We don't know all the fears that are going on, but we know that it says that they were afraid. If we can imagine the scene, everything around them was in chaos. The last few days, everything was going crazy. And now, all of a sudden, they're beginning to ask all these questions and figure out all these other things. Was Jesus dead or alive? If he was alive, how in the world was that possible? And if he was alive, where was he? And and what were they supposed to do as they were waiting, as they were figuring this out, as they were asking questions? What came next? What was supposed to happen? We imagine this scene in our mind in this room. And as you think about it and as you imagine it, I want you to imagine there are probably more than just the 11 there. Well, we know Thomas actually isn't there. So there are probably more than just the 10 remaining disciples. Judas, no longer one of them. But there's more than that gathered. This is a room full of people who have been faithful in following Jesus. I assume Mary is there. She's the one who brought them the message about She's surely among them as they gather. But there are probably others. All of those who have followed. All of those who fear that now they are at risk in some way. They're gathering and they're planning and they're trying to figure this out. They're debating what does faithfulness look like as they move forward. Even in their confusion. Even as they've strayed, some of them, temporarily over the last few days. Again, I think of Peter. And as they're gathered and as they're talking and as there's all this confusion and they're trying to figure out what do we go, where do we do, what's happening, where's Jesus, has he really risen? There's another person in their midst. And we're not specifically told how he got there. Were the doors blown open and Jesus arrives? Did he walk through the door as, a, as we might imagine a ghost doing? Did he just show up? I mean, all of a sudden, did somebody look beside him and go, whoa, how'd you get here? Did he even knock on the door? I, I don't know. We're not given clarity as to exactly what happened, only that Jesus was in their midst and that they were shocked to find Jesus in the room. There was no more question. There was no more wondering. There was no more doubting. There was no more struggle. Jesus had risen. Jesus was here. Jesus stood in their presence. And into their questions, into their chaos, into their confusion, Jesus spoke these words. The very first thing that Jesus says in the midst of this is in verse 19. It says, peace be with you. Now, again, as, as I, and I love to try and picture these scenes as if I'm watching a movie. For me, his words are almost comical. Almost comical. And I really want someone in the room to shout out, Peace! Are you crazy? We're freaking out here! We don't know what's going on! And now you say, Peace be with you. There world was going crazy. Everything was turned upside down. There were political battles taking place. There were were religious wars going on. In the craziness that was their society, there were citizenship issues that were being questioned and talked about. There were poverty issues that were being debated. There were gender issues that were taking place. There were sexuality issues that they were trying to figure out. Their world was falling apart all around them. And while Jesus was with them, it was their hope that Jesus would come in and would settle some of the chaos, would settle some of the craziness, would answer some of the questions that weren't in line with their faith and their religion and who they thought or what they thought 
what the world was supposed to look like in these moments. But then when Jesus was killed, they became even more distraught. Their world was thrown even more out of order. What in the world were they supposed to do? The chaos had been big enough. Jesus was supposed to answer it, but then Jesus was gone. And the chaos, it's as if it had exploded around them. And now Jesus was alive once again. And if they didn't know what was going on beforehand, now they really had no idea what was going on. They were so confused. They were so baffled. Everything is a flutter in their minds as they're trying to figure it out. And they're trying to set it straight. And they don't know what's happening. But if they know anything at all, they know that this is not peace. But this was the proclamation of the risen Savior. This was the word spoken over them. This was the testimony of Jesus. Peace be with you. He said it twice. And then again later, it comes back up in the interaction that happens with Thomas. He says it again, peace be with you. Jesus spoke peace into their chaos. Jesus spoke peace into their fear. Church, the resurrected Jesus wanted to bring his followers peace. Isn't it beautiful? I'm not sure. That you and I even believe that it's possible. But this morning, I want you to hear as clearly as I know how to say it. The risen Messiah wants to speak peace over us. Jesus is declaring peace on our behalf. The risen Savior is declaring peace in our soul. The risen Savior is declaring peace in our relationships. Jesus is declaring peace in our workplace. Jesus is declaring peace in our household. Jesus is declaring peace in our faith. Jesus looks into all of our turmoil and chaos and struggle and pain, all of our conflicts, all of the disasters that constantly seem to be overwhelming us. And speaks peace. He declares it. He proclaims it. He prophesies. Peace be with you. And perhaps more than anything else this morning. Perhaps more than than you need anything at all. Perhaps in your life more than anything you can imagine possible. You need to hear the Savior of the world stand before you and say be with you. Valley, peace be with you. But yes, there is this thing in us that I think doubts if it's even possible. So a reminder about what Jesus is and isn't saying as he speaks to peace is that this isn't peace from Fill in the blank. It's peace in those things. 
You see, as we watch the, the disciples and we look at their lives and we look at the testimony of them marching forward, whether it's in the end of the other gospel stories or it's in the book of Acts or it's even in Paul's letters, we find out that the chaos of their life was not removed. The struggles in their faith weren't made easy. Their suffering wasn't erased. It's actually believed that every one of the apostles was martyred because of their faith. They were given peace in their difficulties, not peace from them. They weren't taken away or erased or avoided. They were given peace in the midst of their trials. Now, if you're anything like me, you think about that, and then you immediately ask the question, how do I get some of that? And there's a problem even in that question, and there's something beautiful revealed in this story and throughout the scriptures as we hear the ways in which Jesus is working and the ways in which Jesus is speaking. Is as we look at the peace of Christ, the peace that was spoken over them, that is spoken over us, we don't get it. We can't work for it. We can't accomplish it. We can't grab it or take hold of it. It's not this thing that either we have or we don't. If we just reach out and grab it, now all of a sudden we've got it. We don't actually discover it by going to church more or praying more or reading the Bible more. Although every one of those things, again, hear this before you start throwing rocks. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. All of those things allow us to experience the peace of Christ more. But just adding up the sum total of those things does not, in turn, give us the peace of Christ. Peace that Jesus spoke of isn't something that's got. It's something that's given. John chapter 20, verse 22 says it this way. It says, then he breathed on them. Now, there's something incredibly powerful if you, like get interested in word studies and study things like Greek. Is that the word breathed often is the same word as wind, which often is the same word as spirit, and all of those kind of overlap together. So this idea, it says when Jesus breathed, it talks about breathed or wind or spirit on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit miraculously brought peace in their chaos. And Jesus wants the Holy Spirit to do the exact same for us. The Holy Spirit can bring peace in our chaos. Jesus' desire is to give us more than the gift of salvation. It is also to give us the gift of peace. And yet we find out, as, as often true in the scriptures and with Jesus, that there is a challenge connected to this gift. There is a task, there is a responsibility. We don't only get peace. We don't only experience peace in our chaos that's given to us by the Holy Spirit. But this Holy Spirit that breathed on the disciples, the same Holy Spirit that breathes peace over us, has also given us the responsibility to then turn around and bring that peace to others. N.T. Wright says this, says, If Easter peace brings order to the world's confusion, it also brings glorious confusion to the world's order. Opening up undreamed of possibilities. Not so much of random miracles, but of new creation in place of decay. New peace 
in place of war. Just before we watch as Jesus breathes this Holy Spirit on his people, in verse 21 of of John 20, Jesus said the same thing, but then he gave the tail end. He says, peace be with you. But then there was the catch. Then there was the part two. Then there was the challenge or the task that came with it. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, we've been told that we are sent, and we've talked about things like the Great Commission, and we talk about missions all the time around Valley, and we're never going to stop doing that. But there is incredible power in this challenge that Jesus gives at this moment. Because Jesus looked at those disciples. Jesus looks at these disciples. You and me gathered in this room, and he looked at them the exact same way that God looked upon his Son. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We are to go and be bringers of peace. Jesus is sending out the disciples as people who introduce peace to the world. People who pass peace on to others. People who speak peace into the difficulties of the world. As disciples, we get the joy of living in this place. We get the the promise that we will experience peace, but then we're called to take peace to the world. You and I are called to speak the message of peace revealed in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. We're called to exhibit peace as we forgive those who have harmed us And as we're even given authority to forgive those who have harmed others. We're called to be peace as we build relationships with people who we don't agree with. Often people we don't even like. We are people who have been sent to make peace. As we demand and restore justice for God's world. Now, that word can be scary because we have all kinds of corrupt understandings of what justice means. But God's picture of justice is is much different than ours. God's justice sets things right once again. This conversation we have been having about a new way. We've talked about solitude and self-denial. We've talked about repentance and confession. Even suffering and worship. And resurrection, and now we add on top of it the way of peace. And the reality is that the new way that Jesus has called us to live and to walk in, it's not any one of those things. It is all of them. There is still suffering and self-denial. There is still difficulty and pain. There also is worship and resurrection and peace. And as we walk through this journey, we're told in the scriptures that Jesus walks with us. This is what we often talk about as our discipleship journey. Our journey of transformation in which Jesus is making us something new, something different. And we find out that as we walk through this journey, as we walk this way of Christ, we find ourselves following Jesus more and more faithfully. We find ourselves following Jesus more and more boldly. As we're faithful to follow after Jesus, we find a growing love inside of us for God and for others. And as we experience this peace, we're asked to be partners with Christ. 
We've followed him. Reality is, as we are on this journey, we're still following. But get this. Get this. Are you ready? Everybody still with me? You awake? If your neighbor's not, jab them because I need you to hear this. Disciples. Men and women who have chosen to follow after Jesus. This passage tells us that we are not only following, but we have now been given the very authority of the king to be peacemakers. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. We are sent out with the authority of the King. We're sent out with the power of Jesus. We experience peace and then we pass it on. We receive forgiveness, but even beyond that is the demand that we be forgiving. We get to partner in communicating by all means possible the love and grace and hope and forgiveness and peace of Jesus and his gospel. Valley. These are the words of your Savior spoken over you. In verse 21 it says again, he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now be at peace. Church, now go in peace. Valley, now go bring peace. Pray with me. Jesus, it is my hope, it is our prayer, that we would be peacemakers. That we would be a people of peace, a people who experience peace, who receive your peace. But also a people who continue to go and recreate peace. People who partner with you in bringing about and restoring the new creation that you have spoken of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.